Amen. So, have you thought about the way that you view your future? It affects everything about how you live. And, and here's the thing. Similar to what Pastor Matt was talking about meeting someone and getting to know them and realizing that they're different. Have you ever thought about how we are people of expectation? Here's, here's what I mean. In almost every scenario in our life, we develop an expectation about what we think is about to happen. If we do that when we meet people, we have an expectation. We, we sort of size them up and we're trying to figure out who they are. If you go to a restaurant you've never been to before, you have an expectation. It might be good. It might be bad. Maybe you didn't want to be there, but you're there, so you're expecting it to be bad. Everything you do, you have an expectation. Now, the exception is when you're surprised. When your expectation is wrong, we're surprised. When we think it's going to be really good and it's not, then we're bummed out. Or if we're not expecting anything great and it's really great, we're super excited. But that's the exception. Those are the things that we sort of talk about that that shock us. But my question is, why is the normal pattern of life centered around constantly developing these expectations about everything that we do and everywhere that we go? Could it be that God designed us this way on purpose? That we're designed to be people of expectation? Because what we expect impacts, it affects, it determines how we live in the present here and now. Now, when you, when you start to bring this principle into a, a biblical framework, sometimes it gets a little crazy because we have to let the Bible shape our expectation or we're going to get in trouble because God is not a God who aligns with our expectation. He exceeds it. He, he, is, he is beyond. His, his ways aren't our ways. All of our expectations are built on our ways and our thoughts. Well, his are completely different. So get your listening guides out. Here's, here's the first thing I want you to consider. God is so good that even enemies are used to bless us. Even enemies are used to bless us. This is an example of the expectation-shattering nature of the God of the Bible. I'm going to show you. Let's think about the beginning. Let's go back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They sin. They decide they want to be like God. They sin. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin comes in. Just like God decreed when he warned them not to eat of the tree. He said, if you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. They eat of the tree. And so they died spiritually as well as physically. Though not immediately, but death enters. So now they become mortal. The second they ate of that fruit, the clock started ticking. Their bodies began to decay. They were moving towards a a fixed, finite point in the future where they would no longer exist in the flesh, right? Now, what is God's response to this situation? We talked over the last couple of weeks about how God, you know, He clothed them and he, He did various things to care for them. But 
God responded ultimately to their decision by expelling them from the Garden of Eden. Didn't he? And he did that as a great act of kindness. Had he not expelled them from the Garden of Eden, it would have been the the tragic events of them eating of the tree would have been magnified by a bazillion. Have you ever thought about it? Look, Genesis chapter 3, look at what the Bible says. Sorry for the small print, we'll fix it. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Now do you see what happened? God expelled them from the Garden of Eden as an act of grace, as an act of kindness. Had God not removed them from the garden, had they eaten of the other tree that was in the garden, they would have been immortalized in their sinful, broken condition, which would have been the greatest catastrophe of all time. Uh Uh-huh. That's why he did this. See, they never would have qualified. They never would have had the opportunity for the heaven that God had for them to enjoy, nor would we. Because we would be forever stuck, immortal, in sin. That's not an expectation that we would have come up with. In the moment, being removed from the Garden of Eden didn't seem like a blessing. It didn't seem like, a, like a, an act of kindness. But it was. You see, because God's different than we are. Imagine living forever and ever and ever as sinners. With no possibility of redemption. No possibility of transformation. See, yes, they would have been excluded from having to face the finality of death, but it wouldn't have mattered because they would have been doomed eternally to a pitiful existence. See, what I want you to understand is that death is both man's greatest enemy, but also, in a sense, his greatest friend. Because of that act of kindness, God enabled a way. See, only through death can we go to God. That's the only way we can get to God, unless we're still living when Jesus returns. That's the only way. So the Bible said... A long time ago, we were in 1 Corinthians 3. And here's what Paul said way back when. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For, notice, all things are yours. All things are yours. He's talking to the saved people in in Corinth. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas 
or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All are yours. Now, all things are yours, he says. All things are yours. Means that they're given to you by God for your benefit. And one of the things that is given to you by God for your benefit is death. Death. We should not be surprised that the Bible lists death as a gift because it is, in a sense, a gift. Only death can give us the gift of eternity, can, can usher us into the place where we have ultimately been created to be. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? See, you see there at the end of the chapter? Look at how powerless death actually is. That's why Christ says things like Matthew chapter 10, where he says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, because there's no sting, there's no victory. So for the saved, death is not the end of the road. It is a bend in the road. It's a bend in the road. It's not the end. Every place that the road winds along the way, Christ has already traveled ahead of us. He's already been there. You see, when we die, He doesn't just meet us on the other side. That's not how it works. He walks with us every step of the way on this side as well. So as we look at this final section in 1 Corinthians 15, we want to think about what what can we expect? What, What is our expectation? In Christ, What is our future after this life is over? And how will an understanding and a knowledge of that change the way that we live today? I want you to think about, think about a, a funeral. Maybe a funeral that you've been to. Maybe a, a funeral that I've done. A funeral of a loved one who knew Christ as Lord and Savior. And you think about the pain and the sorrow that you feel of the separation and the loss of this loved one. And as we're here still gathered around, maybe even prior to the funeral, maybe gathered around that hospital bed or maybe gathered around the bed at home or whatever the case may be, and your loved one takes their last breath. And so here, here's the family gathered around and, and sorrowing over this departure, this separation. But your loved one immediately opens their eyes to new surroundings that are beyond their wildest imagination. See, the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So in this moment, in this very moment that it happens, 
there's this awakening to a new voice. A voice of one you've longed for, you've worshipped, you've read about, you've sung about, but now he's right there before your very eyes and he's calling you by name. And when you look into his face, things that have been so unclear suddenly become like crystal. For the first time, you can see, know, and experience what true compassion is, what true love is. You understand the reality of what those actually are. See, in that moment, in that moment, two things become utterly clear. The first one is, That we are totally unworthy to be there. But at the same time, the second one is, is that his love is exceedingly great and sufficient to allow us there. You see, it's it's paradise. That's what Jesus told the thief on the cross in Luke 23, that today you'll be with me in paradise. It's paradise. It's heaven. It's not the final heaven, but it's heaven. It's paradise. It's with God. But there's more. See, as we sit here this morning, understanding that if you were to read through the Bible and you were to go through all the the prophecies in Scripture that need to be fulfilled before the Lord Jesus comes again, you would come to the conclusion rather quickly that there is no hindrance to God coming right now today. There's nothing hindering Him. And so as we sit here today in this eminent reality that the Lord Jesus could return at any time, we have loved ones that are with Him in paradise. But there's more. There's more. And so as Paul began teaching the Corinthians about the resurrection of Christ, they began to have questions about resurrection. So look at verse 35. Verse 35, but some will say, someone will say, well, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? That's a great question. See, this question sends Paul on this sort of uh, just cosmic search for ways in which to illustrate and to answer the complexity of the question that they're asking. He says, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh for men, another for fish, another for animals, another for flesh, another for birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. 
but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There are There is one glory of the sun, another for the moon, and another glory for stars, and and for other stars, they differ from one another. See, look at what Paul does. Paul is is, is just reaching out into creation to try to just expand their understanding of what what this whole conversation is going to be like. He's saying... Look at the grains that you sow into the ground and the different plants that spring up based on those. And how you can so easily take something so miraculous for granted that we would just take for granted that this little seed goes in the ground and dies and rots and then produces this amazing plant. That we would just come to expect that that would happen. He says, look at the animal kingdom. Look at all the different kinds and the variations that exist. Look at that. Look at the creativity of God. Look at the glory of the heavens. Look at the the sun and the moon and the stars. Look at the creative nature of God. Before you can have any conversation about the resurrection, you have to understand the God of resurrection. You have to understand how immense He is and how different He is than us and how thoughtful and intentional He is in His creativity and in His creation. We live in a time right now that I believe is the death of creativity. It's the death of creativity. We've never, this is all just, you know, edit, my opinion. This is the greatest age of ignorance in human history, in my opinion. We can't think of anything new. All we can do is rehash old things. There's so little creativity today, it's shocking. Wonder why that is. You got any ideas? I do. I'm going to tell you. I think one of the biggest problems is we don't read books. Now, listen, I know some of you just went. <laughs> Which just proved my point. But anyway, I want you to think about something. See, when you read a book, you you are left to develop the imagery of what you're reading in your own mind. You construct the world in which you're entering through the book. When you watch television or movies... Someone else does that for you. They tell you what it would look like and therefore remove the need for you to exercise any creative nature in your brain whatsoever. So you just sit there like a, like a dumb cow staring at a new gate. I mean, I got to get off the soapbox because we got to move forward. But I just want you to know something that YouTube, Snapchat, and TikTok are only making you dumber. 
They're making you dumber. At some point, you've got to start to read. You've got to explore things with your mind. You must exercise your creativity because I'm afraid of what is happening when you read your Bible. As soon as I began to approach this text, all I could think of is how how God is telling us through this text, Paul is saying, you have to understand the creative nature of God and you have to begin to exercise your creative juices in your mind to even begin to have this conversation. And then I began to think about how many of you never do that. You think about a lot of things, but you never exercise your creativity. You don't paint things. You don't draw things. You don't create things. You don't make things. And you never read anything that's longer than a tweet. And it's killing us. And it's robbing you of great joy in your interaction with God through His Word. Okay, my opinion's over. Now we're back to what's not my opinion. Look at verse 38. I want to draw your attention to 38. But God gives, gives it, at, it a body as He pleases to each seed its own body. See that? God creates uniqueness. God's not in the duplication business. To each seed, its own body. So what God is alluding to is that that when we receive this new resurrection body that, that we're about to start talking about, that the same God that made me unique today will make me unique then, and you as well. That in glory, in our resurrection bodies... I will be me and you will be you in the resurrection to some degree. And we know this because remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was there and and the disciples sort of witnessed this conversation going on between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Now, there was no question back and forth about who that was. and so They knew. They were, Moses was still enough Moses to know who he was and Elijah was enough Elijah to know who he was and so was Jesus when he returned in his resurrected body they knew who he was so we will know each other we will recognize each other in heaven we will understand who we are not just because we have this new glorified mind that knows as we've been known but beyond that because we will still have this unique essence of who we are But at the same time, we'll be so incredibly different. So different. See, what I think it, it, it actually will be is that we'll be more ourselves than we've ever been before. Because we'll be ourselves unpolluted and undiluted. See, what the Bible teaches is that personhood survives the death of the body. Because this is the creative nature of the God who is orchestrating all of these events. 
just think about how when Stephen was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, and he called out to the Lord, and he said, Lord, receive my spirit. He didn't say receive my body. Because in that moment, as he died, his body perished, but his spirit didn't. It was receive my spirit. Our new bodies will be in some way linked to our existing body. Just And some of you, that's a bummer for you. But it shouldn't be because whatever's a bummer is fallen. There won't be anything fallen. Everyone over 50 says, Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm telling you. So look at verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the body, of the dead, right? So the body is sown in corruption. That's what we got now, but it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. That's what we have now, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it has raised a spiritual body. Therefore, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now, don't get confused. Because we will be, we're talking about a physical, literal body. So, so many people get tangled up on verse 44. He's not, he doesn't say a spirit body. He says a spiritual body. It's a literal body. So for the first time in our lives, we're going to, We'll know by experience, with our eyes, God's presence. For the very first time, we'll love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For the very first time ever, we'll see the one who we were made by and made for. We will actually understand and see the glory of God permeating through all of creation in the way it was ultimately intended to do. See, we'll no longer struggle to walk with God. It's a struggle, isn't it? Every day. But we won't struggle anymore. We'll, we'll, we will walk with God and everything about us will be in harmony with everything about Him. It's such a foreign concept. I struggled with even how to put it in words. Heaven is the earthly life of the believer, glorified and perfected. It's, it's life supercharged. It's the glorified, perfected life. This is just a tiny little grain of sand. It's the, it's the most minute down payment or example or precursor you could ever imagine. And we know this because look at verse 50. He says, now this I say, brethren, that... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
cannot. It's too much to handle. See, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. See, what, what Paul is saying here is that you and I cannot possibly go to heaven the way we are. We would be obliterated. We can't, we're not made, we can't handle that. We're, we're not, we don't have the capacity for that in our flesh and blood. It doesn't matter how good a shape you think you are. It doesn't matter how, uh, you know, keen your mind or your thinking is today. That, that is irrelevant information. We as we are, are not in any way fit for heaven physically. We cannot we cannot. Think about it. There, we, we can't have a decaying body in a permanent home. How would that work? It can't work. It's impossible. The two clocks would be clicking opposed to one another. So what God is going to do is He's going to give His children a resurrection body that is suited for the environment in which we will live for all eternity. But it's amazing how we confuse this around. How we jumble things up or overlook things. Or, and I, I, I believe that it robs us of our proper expectation and motivation. See, we don't just go to heaven... When we're talking about the, the final heaven where we'll be with our resurrection bodies, we don't just go to heaven. How does that work? Heaven comes to us. That's what basically happens. Heaven comes to earth. Remember in Revelation 21, the revelator says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Yes. So all of this will be recreated and will be replaced so when we think about it we don't we don't just hope for a day when we'll go live with God but ultimately we're we're also hoping for that that day maybe today where God will come back and live with us see maybe it'll be today maybe it'll be tomorrow I don't know Our future, our eternity, where we will spend 10,000 upon 10,000 upon 10,000 years is a new and better Eden on a new and better earth. And so what in the world will this be like? Well, look at verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. We shall not all sleep. It's a metaphor for die. But we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. See, imagine this now. Imagine you're just living life. 
Maybe we're sitting in this very room and there's the sound of a trumpet blasting, but this trumpet is it's louder than a jet plane breaking the, the sound barrier. This is an earth-shattering, uh, just all-consuming sound. And as we whip our heads around to investigate the source of that noise... It's Jesus, the one and only. Come back as he said he would. The resurrected, living, breathing, conquering, undefeated, magnificent King of kings and Lord of lords is coming back to claim what's rightfully his. And you see, in the twinkling of an eye, just that fast, those who are still alive will be changed. Those who are dead and with God now will then be changed. And it won't be that our old bodies are patched up or repaired or resurfaced or restructured. No, it's new bodies fit for new people who are going to spend eternity in a new place. See, for the Christian, that the grave is not the entrance to death, but to life. You see, those who have already died in Christ and who are with the Lord at this very moment, they are experiencing life beyond anything we can possibly comprehend. But there's coming another moment when we're all going to be ushered together. When we're going to be given these permanent bodies and we're going to move into our permanent eternity. And we're going to spend all the rest of time, just an infinite number of days there. Changed. Our body is going to be so much Better than it is now. That when we think about how it used to be. It will just make us overflow with joy. We'll be free from everything that's wrong. Everything. See here's what Philippians 3 says. That our citizenship is in heaven. For which we eagerly wait for the Savior. The Lord Jesus. Why? Who will transform our lowly body. See, that's just being nice. That's just being polite, politically correct. That it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able to subdue all things to Himself. To His body. So we, what we know about Christ and His time here in his resurrection body we know that that's the kind of body that we're going to have but what's more important is that we will have a body like his when the reason that's more important is because the the key is is that we will relate to him in ways that we cannot even fathom because no no the the, mo- the most precious wonderful closest time you've ever spent with god you were still 
fellowshipping with a God who is infinitely different than you. But one day it won't be that way. One day you will be able to connect with Him and we'll be able to connect with each other in a way that we can't not even comprehend because we will be like Him, the Bible says. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 17. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness and I'll be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. What a blessing. Whew. And here's what's amazing. When you read the Bible, you start realizing how often the Bible is, is alluding to and telling us that we will be doing many of the things that we do today, but just in a, in a completely brand new, unbelievable way. You see, we will, we will eat. Not because we need to. Just to enjoy. You see, we will, we will work, we will worship, we will learn, we will travel. We'll experience so many of the things that we experience now, but we'll be unhindered and, and everything will be untainted by corruption. It'll all be made perfect. Look at verse 57. Paul says, but thanks be to God who gives, look, who the victory? See, whose victory is it? Look, it's, 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 it's his victory, but he gives us the victory. Us, we're the recipients of the victory. Don't you see that? He gives us the victory. Therefore, verse 58, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding. Always abounding. See, when he says, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. In the Greek, that's plural. He's not talking to you, he's talking to us. That, that when this statement is made to people who are in community. You understand? This is to a group of people that are connected together. This statement is made to a group of people that are connected in a church called Corinth, and it's the exact same thing today to a group of people that are connected together in a church called Michael. It's the same thing. Be steadfast together. Be immovable together. Always abounding. Think about that. Always abounding. It doesn't mean survive. It doesn't mean grit your teeth and hang on. It doesn't mean just... Just somehow get by or get through. No, to abound means to, to thrive, to excel. The word literally means to go beyond an expected measure. Always abounding. How can we always abound? We have so many things that come against us, so many things that, that harass us and, and, and seek to defeat us and to discourage us and to dissuade us, just constantly barraging us. We have an enemy that never rests. And yet the Bible says, always abound. 
What if I don't feel like it? What if I'm tired and worn out and discouraged? What should I do then, God? You know what you should do? Notice it doesn't say just abound in anything. It says abound in the work of the Lord. So you know what you do when you don't feel like you can? You start working for the Lord. And then your feelings will catch up to you. That's what will happen. You start working. And then you'll start abounding. But there's no chance you're going to abound if you're not working. Because how could you abound in the work of the Lord if you're not doing the work of the Lord? I don't think I had to be the smartest person in the room to figure that out. If you're not doing the work of the Lord, you have zero chance to abound in it. So whatever you do, wherever you are this morning, step one. What what have we already learned from 1 Corinthians? All this talk about spiritual gifts and competition and struggling and all these things. You take your spiritual gift that God's given you. Every one of you, he's commanded you to use it. And you use it in the work of the Lord. So that you can then begin to abound in that. Because the victory is already won. It belongs to us. So we don't retreat. We don't shrink back. We don't, we don't turn and go backwards. No, we go forward. Abounding in the work of the Lord. See, look, knowing. Look at what he says. Knowing, we're not hoping, we're not thinking. We're knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Don't you see? You know why? Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not working, you know why you're not working? Because you think it's in vain. You have the wrong expectation. You've been misled, you've been duped, you've been tricked. You're being robbed. You're being robbed. Knowing, knowing the Bible says that your labor is not in vain. Listen, Christian, your work in the Lord is not a waste of time. Your service is not useless. Your worship is not a waste. Everything you give matters. Everything you do for God has value. See, what you do in this life, the moment you got saved, something changed. Well, everything changed. But one of the things that changed is the fact that from that moment forward, what you do matters. It matters. It matters to God. It matters eternally. Don't doubt it. 
You have a role in this story. If you're saved, you're a chosen vessel. Chosen for what? To just hang on? You're trying to just limp up to the finish line? Trying to just crawl your way through this last little leg of the race? You know what the enemy's telling you? Oh, don't worry. You used to do things. You know what the Bible says? Always abounding. It doesn't say just abound at some point in your life. That's not what it says. It's always abounding. You have an expectation problem. And it's sucking the very victory right out of your life. What you don't realize is that all your life, every road you've ever traveled has led you to this one. This is the road, the moment, the season, the journey. This is it. This is it. In this life. This is the moment. Don't believe the lie that it's some tomorrow or the next day, the next day. It's not. It's now. Didn't Jesus say, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die? Isn't that what he said? That's what he said. Shall never die. You know, a lot of us in this room have loved ones that are in heaven right now. They're, they're with Jesus in paradise. And they're doing a lot of amazing things. And there's a soundtrack that's playing continuously in heaven. There's songs that are permeating through heaven that are always there as they're just enjoying the, the wonder and the splendor that God has prepared for them. But there are only one type of song. They're songs of victory. They're not singing songs of hope because there's no need for that. See, they don't, they're not singing a lot of songs we would sing because all oh, that's past. It's all now just about the victory. It's all now just about what's done. See, they're experiencing what our hearts should be set on expecting. See, hope is hearing the music of the future. Faith is dancing to that melody in the here and now. Do you hear it? Do you hear that song of victory in your future? Are you thinking about what it's going to be like in that new body, on that new earth, all together like Jesus with him, 
God wants you to dance to that melody today. Today. What are your expectations? And who formed them? Let's stand and bow our heads.